I'm here with John Anderson at CNU 31 in Charlotte. John, uh, I've known you a couple of years. Do, do, do we want to admit? Uh, I think you came. We knew each other off the original CNU listserv. And you oh, came, yes, you, the beauty of the, the listservs. Yeah. yeah, and then you came out to uh, I think Charlotte. Well, I did come to a show. Did I meet you maybe at Milwaukee CNU? I think that was the first Congress I went to. CNU uh, seven, I think. Yeah. Well, you drug me down to do a bunch of stuff for the MPO. That's right. I did for yeah. Mark. Yeah. 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 Um, the uh, I I've never spoken that many times in a city that generated zero work. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's like, oh yeah, you're a thought leader. We were we were we were just way too early. Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, late nineties. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, we first, I think worked together on the Truckee Charette yeah. in 99 yeah. in Truckee, California. That was a lot of fun. And then, uh, the, the one in Lee Summit, uh-huh. that was fantastic. Longview 2001. Longview. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the, the catering for that Charette. Yeah. The, uh, for listeners that are doing Charettes, <laughs> if you're doing more than a three or four day Charette, and it's a, you know, you get this death march, um, by day three, you need to be bringing in chicken soup. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I yeah. feel comforted and appreciated. And there's a massage chair? Damn. Yeah. We all, well, we always tried to mix it up and, and really make sure people were taken care of on our charrettes because uh, it's a grind yep. in many, many hours. So anyway, John, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, who you are. If anybody who's familiar with the new urbanism world has probably heard you speak. Uh, has probably seen your name. Uh, you've now now that it's 2023, you're this like really famous guy that everybody <laughs> knows and talks to. <laughs> no, I think the but, term you're looking for is infamous. Oh uh, well, there's that too. Yeah, yeah. So um, I know that you started uh, as a young person in Minnesota, grew up in Duluth. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, and I think you told me at one time you were a high school dropout originally. Yeah, well, I didn't so much drop out as I just never got around to going back after Christmas <laughs> vacation. <laughs> because I got more hours at the kitchen I was working at, the restaurant I was working at. Yeah. And it was like, oh, yeah, I'll go next week. And then after a while, um, the uh, the registration for the next semester was coming up, and they wouldn't let me take any more shop classes. Mm-hmm. They needed me to, like, go to English and algebra and stuff, but where I had incompletes or Fs. <laughs> so if I can't take any shop classes, what is the point? Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. So the uh, – but I – uh, if you drop out of high school in northern Minnesota, you work in places with your peers, yeah, um, which include people recently released released from jail or prison, um, uh, people aging out of foster. So that was uh, kitchens, uh, construction sites, and uh, scrapyard, which is way too shady even for me. So, mm-hmm. but and I realized that construction doesn't require you to work as relentlessly hard as as being in the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. So kind of by default, I, I slid toward that. Yeah. And you were, uh, was it electrician is what you well, gravitated start, towards? Yeah. Well, I started uh, doing drywall and painting and because I'd done renovations with my dad and the houses we lived in. Um, so I knew my way around that. And I kind of gravitated to carpentry because that's kind of a, a macho, let's mm-hmm. build cool stuff thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, I was doing electrical work and... Uh, a guy I knew from around the way uh, said he could get me into the electrical union in New York, which is what he was. Hmm. The, uh, I didn't understand at the time that you need to kick back half of your salary for the first year. <laughs> but so at 18, I, I went out. Uh, we lived in in uh, on a six story walk up on the sixth floor in what used to be called Hell's Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when that and so I was in New York, uh, in Manhattan and Brooklyn. We're doing renovations of, of brownstones where you know, your, your task at the beginning of the day is to sweep the syringes off the stoop. Mm-hmm. And you got to figure out if this is a Dominican neighborhood or a Puerto Rican neighborhood so you can hire the right guys. Yeah. Was, there a un- was there a union trade for sweeping syringes? Uh, there should have been. I mean, you know, you should get paid for that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I, I was able to, uh, I went through the program, I got my journeyman's, mm-hmm. and then about six months later, I fell off a scaffold. And shattered my shoulder, and uh, as part of rehab, I used to be left-handed, mm-hmm. but that was the side I fell on. And as part of my rehab, they put me mm-hmm. into uh, an architect's office, um, ostensibly to do electrical design, which is another word for you will be everyone's 
a red line drafting bitch mm-hmm. for all the ever book people in the office. And this is all before cats. It's like yeah. a pencil and mylar yeah. and hand lettering. Yeah. Because they were too cheap to get a coin machine. Uh-huh. So I had to learn how to letter with my right hand. Uh-huh. And finally, when I get my arm out of the the, the, the apparatus, right. it's like I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. write or draw with my left hand anymore. So yeah. uh, I was there for like two years and most of what I was doing, they had a picture in their minds about, you know, uh, what was an appropriate task for me. So if we need measured drawings of a shitty building full of rat shit, mm-hmm. send job. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to have a big dra- knockdown, drag out argument with an Italian contractor in Queens. Mm-hmm. Send John. Those are his people. <laughs> and so, I, you know, after a couple of years of that, um, and there was like no illusion I would become an architect. Yeah. You'd have to yeah. Like finish high school and go to college. Right. I mean, even then there was, a, there was still actually a path back then. Yeah. Um, it was a much better, much easier path back then than there is now. Yeah. Uh, you, you could, but, you but it could was hard. Uh, put in time in the trade and document. Right. You could qualify to take the test. Right. And after a while, it, it was a diminishing number of states that would allow that. And right. now, you know, it's like the, I was in California and I was like tallying up like how many mm-hmm. years of experience I had and maybe I would, mm-hmm. I would test for license. And while I was putting together my documentation, they changed it so that, yes, eight years experience, no problem, you take the test. You can reach back as long as, as, as far as six months from, from today, mm-hmm. reach back six months. You know, it was like, and then start your eight years of experience. Oh, At which point, um, David Kim told me that, look, um, the, the last thing you should do, John, is put yourself in a position where um, your argument with the client allows you to be sued. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, no, you can always find uh, grownups and architects to, that will be happy to work with you. Yeah, yeah. So the, um, so I took that advice to heart. And also just the, I, I felt so, uh, you know, when you when you sort of see an action and uh, assert what you must think must be the motivation, mm-hmm. I figured that the AIA in California was personally out to get me because <laughs> you could not have saddled me with so much frustration and disappointment on accident, mm-hmm. right? You, you know, it's like, if you ask those guys, they're like, no, we do that all the time. It's yeah. not personal. It's, you're not that special, John. But, and and it was, ultimately, it wasn't that hard to find young, naive architects from Kansas City to oh, come yeah. to California. We, we and have them work come out to California. So. It's like, well, yeah. we've got these things all designed, but we need work in drawings. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you're in New York. To, at some point, you go back to Minnesota, or was there were there other steps? Yeah. Between? Well, I, I go from the architect's office to I got a gig with a local contractor as a superintendent, and that mm-hmm. turned into estimating, project management. And then... Um, like I, I didn't, if you always want to work on a bigger project, a bigger project, you jump from company to company to mm-hmm. do that. You chase the projects. Yeah. So I did that for quite a while to the point where we were now, uh, I was working with a, 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 like a family development company doing, you know, infill townhouses for volunteer ambulance corps, mm-hmm. you know, in Westchester or medical office condos in Orange County. And, you know, mm-hmm. they, the, everything was opportunistic. They were just bouncing around all over the place. And then one fateful day, a Tuesday in, ni- in, in uh, 1987, the company owner asked me to come in early and explain to me what a margin call was mm-hmm. and why I should be concerned. And the, he was in very heavily on margin. It turns out he had a cocaine issue too. Mm-hmm. We should have seen that coming. <laughs> and so uh, they, you know, there was a margin call and he would have, have to come up with a significant amount of money uh, his family bailed him out with the understanding that they that we liquidate the company, sell all the projects. Um, and so uh, after that was over, a headhunter found me a gig in Reno. Hmm. And uh, we had our first child at that point and realized we had no support system. And I went back to Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a familiar story there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about that another yeah, time. Yeah, well, so. you know, the uh, Savannah's great when you're single trying to live a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I go back to Minnesota, the, went to work at the Mall of America for what's now the Simon Properties Group, so Reed. But at that time, it was a family-run uh, mm-hmm. development outfit. And um, this, so this was on the site of the old Metropolitan Stadium. Mm-hmm. It was a public-private partnership with the city of Bloomington. 
and the uh, the the developers from Edmonton Triple Five Corp um, went to Teachers Insurance and said, mm-hmm. you know, Teachers Pension Fund said we want to do this thing with uh, a music park and more coastline than the Atlanta Pacific and the the Flying Gramazian Brothers. And the people, the teacher says, well, this is great, but you need to get like a real mall developer. Hmm. And uh, we do a lot of work with Simon. Why don't you guys have a shotgun marriage? And so they brought in Simon and the folks at Simon, uh, they went through every legit, real, legitimate uh, vice president and they all took a pass. No one wanted this project in Siberia. I mean, Minnesota. <laughs> and so there was a guy recently elevated um, the... Uh, uh, who took it as a career opportunity, um, and his what he and what he did was he said this is a highly siloed, specialized arrangement where people kind of measured their role in the organization by the number of people they supervised. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Joe, our, our our rabbi in the effort says, I need to have somebody from every department so we can have an integrated team, and we're going to locate them on the site in Minnesota, and we're going to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And they said. Uh, no, these are my people. You know, it's like, well, if we have to do this, uh, I know. Give them Murphy; that'll fix them. So they they had this collection of black sheep, maverick, troublemaker types who were thrilled to get out of their silo mm-hmm. and work on a team. And the rest of us, they recruited from the minor leagues, hmm. and we were thrilled because we we're going. This is like a big grown-up project, yeah, yeah. biggest thing ever. No doubt, out. yeah. And there are some things that don't get better when they get bigger. <laughs> and shopping malls fall into that category. Yeah. And so, so I, I had that gig. We moved to Minnesota. We have another kid. We live in, in, a, in a, on the west side in a Sears Roebuck house. Mm-hmm. And every day I would get in my little um, skateboard of a car and drive through from the streetcar expansion to St. Paul through every successive generation of American development till I get to the intersection of two freeways by the airport where we're building a huge mall. And every night, I reversed the process. And there was such cognitive dissonance. I was like, I was so mm-hmm. miserable on that car trip every day that when I finally read Geography of Nowhere, I was like, this guy knows exactly <laughs> my experiences. <laughs> you know, he you... proposes no solutions, but boy, does he have it on point. You know? When you're driving back uh, at night and driving back in the reverse, did you like feel your blood pressure dropping as you get closer oh, and closer? Yeah. No, I, I, well, actually... It's like the, in the in the spring in Minnesota, you you have the the mountain of snurt, snow and dirt. It's <laughs> in one corner of the parking lot. Yeah. So I would pull in, and I would there was always parking space over there. So I would, I'd sit there and I'd be looking at the flash cube black and beach building that we yeah. were occupying. And you know, it's like deep breaths. Okay, yeah. we're gonna go in there and, and listen to people scream at us. Yeah. And so I was there for four years because we had a incentive thing to, you, you got to get there to grand opening and then you get your package. Mm-hmm. I, and in retrospect, I learned everything I needed to learn about building, you know, hypertrophic malls mm-hmm. in the first two years. Mm-hmm. So, but that was a time when health and health insurance was, you know, a big thing. Yeah. So we get the, we get that open, uh, and oh, during that time, I'm on the board of the neighborhood CDC in my neighborhood. <laughs> so I'm living, uh, I got one foot on the dock and the other on the boat. <laughs> and in my life is a series of groin pulls. At that point. <laughs> and so finally, I get done and uh, I hang out a shingle and start doing uh, contract project management. Okay. And I got a nice, you know, I'm one of seven project managers from the mall. So I right. got like, you know, big muscular resume. Right. And people hate me because I worked in Mall of America, you know, so in Minneapolis, you can imagine I'm killing off other malls. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm a terrible person. Um, but I probably know something cause we got that open under budget at a schedule. So I'm doing that. And one of my clients was Michael Lander who was doing infill mm-hmm. townhouses and the like. Yeah. And, um, so, um, he come, he crashes the second CMU in Los Angeles and he comes back super excited as you know, and he takes me out for coffee and it's like, John, we're going to, we're going to have a town planning company. Cause I, I met this guy from TPC and he's moving back to Minneapolis and 
know, mm-hmm. you're a builder, I'm a developer, he's a, he's a town planner, it'd be amazing. I'm like, well, what's a town planning company? <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, what is know, town planning? Yeah. Is that- so he gives me the Peter Katz book and, yeah. you know, Geography of Nowhere. And it's like, this looks really dangerous. I don't know if I yeah. can do this. Uh, and so we bring in a project and, uh, and it performs well and it's kind of a, a bonus or a treat. Uh, we go down to the technique of town planning three mm-hmm. days uh, with Andreas at, at Seaside. At Seaside, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Where I spent three days arguing with Andreas, <laughs> <laughs> and his response was just artful. It's like, well, you know, let me appoint you to three committees of the CNU. And I'm like, yeah. What's the CNU? Oh, we're meeting in Charleston next month. You must come. <laughs> it's like, okay. So I go to Charleston with our contingent from the Twin Cities and. Stay, you know, in a amazing Charleston single, you know, in the servants' quarters in the back. We're walking around the peninsula, and, and then three hundred amazing people. Yeah. And <clears throat> but at the same time, I had just been to Laguna West, which was mm-hmm. a, a Keltar project that had gone sideways in mm-hmm. the recession, and it was pretty awful. And it's in the New Urbanism book. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, I think that they had to work really hard to find something sympathetic to photograph. Yeah. Because they had, like, models and stuff in there. So I was thinking, you know, Seaside was amazing. Mm-hmm. Blue Luna at the other end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Huge. They did infrastructure for a thousand homes. Mm-hmm. So there's, like, utility stuff stubbed up with taco wrappers blowing up against it. And yeah. It was tum- tumbleweeds. Mm-hmm. So I was really, you know, it's like, I don't know about this. And then uh, the guys from Celebration were there. It was like, Disney's doing this? I, mm-hmm. I definitely don't want to do this. And then the key, the opening keynote was uh, Henry Cisneros, the Secretary of HUD, who proceeds to show <laughs> us a slideshow of raised ranch houses in the South Bronx. And I'm like, screw this. This is not for me. No, sir. Uh-huh. You know? And he got a standing ovation from these people, I think, just because he was a HUD secretary. Yeah. And then there was a debate in the city hall chambers with like the, the, the Windsor chairs and the tilt desks and the, the portraits of dead white guys, three high mm-hmm. on the wall. And Kunstler was debating with Regendros, Calthorpe, and uh, Ben Solomon. And he was making what I thought was a very convincing argument why the CNU should not get into bed with HUD mm-hmm. for Hope 6. Mm-hmm. Turned, that turned out well. You know? mm-hmm. But it's like you know, it looked it it looked very like this was going to tilt to this organization of people tied in with Disney and Laguna West, and now they got to go with HUD. They got to go back to doing infill in Minneapolis. And then I heard Leon Creer, and it's like my brain melted. It's like I got to do this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Like this, like these cartoons are like the scribblings of a madman, but it somehow mm-hmm. really spoke to me. So you know the uh, so after that we we put together. Uh, uh, plan book from in and around the Normanism stuff, mm-hmm. stock plans that could work. Yeah, alleys. I still have those. The, the, those you two or three of them that you there did. Are three of there them. were three. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. Apparently, eight hundred dollars on Amazon now. I don't completely out of print. Really? Yeah. Maybe I should uh, try to go on eBay and try to list yeah. mine. Well, I've only got three. Huh. <laughs> I used to have boxes of them, but I just yeah. have three. But that let me. Um, I at that time. Uh, got a lot of work that was like table scraps from DPC. Mm-hmm. It's like 12 acres in Charlotte for a builder. You know, have him call John. Those are his people. Yeah. We can't be bothered. Yeah. It's not 300 acres. No. Yeah. So I did a bunch of that and it was really frustrating because we get it entitled and the client would flip it to a builder mm-hmm. who would proceed to now the houses are slab on grade utilities in the front yard the, the street that we drew is, and got accepted the engineers fixed it so it would be properly over the line mm-hmm. and the alleys are gold plated and so it felt like my clients would like we would work together to get it to the two yard line and then they head for the showers mm-hmm. and i'd seen places like new point and you know yeah. uh, catlins right and it's like i know we could do this and our projects in minneapolis with michael lander were pretty darn nice mm-hmm. So uh, at that point, uh, also, I've got depression. So, you know, I'd be in Minnesota in the winter, and then I would f- go to Austin or Florida or the Carolinas 
and have sunshine and feel great. Yeah. And go home to my the embrace of my family and feel like putting a gun to my head. Or it's gray for six oh, six months straight. God, it's awful. Yeah. Know? Well, for me, it was particularly awful. Yeah. And so we decided we're going to move someplace with sunshine and uh, where we have a shot at building again. And so I kind of I looked at my, my client list at that point, interviewed a bunch of different places, but we decided to go out to Northern California where mm-hmm. I had a couple of clients. Mm-hmm. So we went to Chico, which kind of reminded me of Duluth, you mm-hmm. know? Um, kind of a peripheral city with a second-rate university. <laughs> now, they didn't have a great hockey team like University of Minnesota well, Duluth yeah. did, right. Notre Dame, damn it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, uh, well, they're they're usually up there in like the yeah. Frozen Four. In that yeah, world, so. they, they do well. <clears throat> yeah. in, in Chico, they had a really good um, uh, D1 baseball team. Oh, okay. So, and that was... And the, it was kind of a blue dot in a red county, mm-hmm. kind of like Duluth. Mm-hmm. But also, it was like Duluth, we had no illusion we were ever going to become the Paris of the Prairies. Right. You know, it was a pretty gritty, working class, you know, working port. Um, the, um, and we didn't feel like we had a lot in common with people that referred to themselves as Minneapolitans. <laughs> so, yeah. but the, uh, I digress. So we go to Chico, uh, Worked with uh, Tom Giovanni, and we were simpatico, and, and uh, uh, kind of had had opposite strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, um, and that was real. That was the first time that you and I actually got a chance to work together, working yeah. at Truckee, and then working in Chico yeah. when you started conceiving uh, Domill. Yeah, and so the we we took over a, an existing PUD that was fallow that the bank had bought, and we bought we uh, so we bought that. Mm-hmm. And then just rejiggered the PUD. We had mm-hmm. like one planning commission meeting and it was done. Yeah. So it was like, I'd heard all these stories about how hard it is to get things entitled in California. And I thought, right. well, you know, not if you're us. Yeah. <clears throat> that changed. Yeah. Uh, but so we did the plan. We wrangled with the engineers and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the utility companies and the parks department that needs bloated huge parks for efficient grass mowing, yeah. uh, all that stuff. Uh, and we pushed really hard not to, you know, it, people kept, the city kept talking about how we should have, you know, have the HOA take care of that. Yeah. And we decided that we wanted to have the same HOA as the two best neighborhoods adjacent to the university where the, you know, where the mayor and the bank presidents live, mm-hmm. which is no, no HOA. HOA. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Public street, public alley, <clears throat> yeah. you know, and you know we we held we we held it together and were able to deliver that. Uh, and we uh, did a couple of other infill projects with the idea of scaling up because we were working on the uh, the Marion Park project, which was we did that charade in '03. Mm-hmm. We were there for that too. I was not at Marion Park. That was I was, it was I was in my brain. Yeah. I know it was a it was a weird thing. It was one of those that I, I always regretted not being there because you had Leo. You had Leon Career for that. Yeah. I I remember he my ass for five days straight. Oh, I bet he did. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you had invited me, but I I actually had a, a conflict with another project at the exact same time, if I remember right, and I'd already yeah. committed to it. So, but. so we uh, so two hundred acre master plan. There was a site that was purchased to put a replace the downtown hospital, but mm-hmm. economics of healthcare changed, so we were going to be able to buy it from them. And we, you know, it was three years to get full entitlements and no, and support the local environmental community. And, um, and so we had about, I think about 30% of the capital stack was uh, local bank debt. Mm-hmm. Everything else was equity. And in 2008, uh, the bank uh, called all their development loans on the basis that the if you remember that time, the, the term mark to market, mm-hmm. which we're about to see for mm-hmm. office buildings now. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, this 200 acres, you know, if you had to sell it at a bulk discount in 90 days, what's that worth? Yeah. We lent you way more money than that. Mm-hmm. You, you need to repay your loan. And so it's a cash call. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, so I got diluted out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the New Urban Builders, the company we had built, shrunk down from 50 people because we had so many carpenters and the like, mm-hmm. on, you know, in, in-house, to three. And, mm. and David Kim and I were not in the three. Mm-hmm. 
and we managed to, you know, the same time you match, you miraculously was able to do design work in Savannah mm-hmm. and not have to ever become a bartender. <laughs> um, Although we, I seriously considered it for a while. Yeah. Well, we ended up doing a bunch of work. Uh, a lot of times for our former competitors. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was kind of a dark night of the soul because the, um, we understood more about development and engineering and utilities and marketing than mm-hmm. our new clients did. They were hiring us for a design mojo mm-hmm. in a very superficial way. So, um, but it paid the bills and we learned very quickly what we didn't want to do. We don't do that anymore. And then we started looking at if there is no uh, construction loan to be had, what could, you know, you'd have to build with cash, like hard money or equity from your friend, the dentist or the mm-hmm. guy who owns the Ford dealership. What could we build with cash, fairly modest, and then refinance it with a one to four unit agency mortgage, FHA, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. And at that time, you could do up to 20% uh, non-residential. You do one to four units and 20% non-residential. And so uh, we, at 19.6% mm-hmm. you know, uh, office, and we got to that point by making the bike storage room slightly larger. And we um, and we called it the form follows, we're like reverse engineering. What can you do given the resources that are out there? We call that the form follows finance fourplex or the mm-hmm. 4F. Right. Um, now, I wanted to call it the form follows the smoking crater of financial death <laughs> fourplex. Um, David thought that Foreign Fathers Finance Fourplex was alliterative and shorter, and that would be better. Well, David's a little more diplomatic than, than David's David. an infinitely better person. Than I, am. <laughs> I, I am so much, but I'm so fortunate to have him, you know, in my head, like on my shoulder, and Eleanor, my wife, on the other shoulder. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have not murdered anyone since that started. <laughs> so, but I certainly understand the urge. Yeah. So we started doing that and we sent it out, like, let's open source this, reskin it for your local thing. Here's the pro forma. Mm-hmm. Because we've gotten into a habit of, if you're going to design something at a very early stage, you need to see if the numbers are going to work mm-hmm. and adjust the design accordingly. You know, you, you do it in an iterative way. Um, and that's how we'd operated in New Urban Builders. So it's like, you know, what, you don't do that? You don't run your numbers? You know, if your design guy's working for a developer, you better. Mm-hmm. So we sent that out. Uh, a couple of people uh, took it up and mm-hmm. wanted to build it. We did a few projects where we were working, uh, we would work on spec, early conceptual design. Um, but once financing was in place, we would get our full fee uh, plus, mm-hmm. and then we get a piece of equity. Mm-hmm. And that worked pretty well. We went projects in, in uh, Albuquerque that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but we evolved the situation where we would, we like, we tried really hard not to take on any design or planning work if we weren't also doing the pro forma. Mm-hmm. Because we'd had the experience kind of in the immediate 2009, the, the developer farms out his pro forma to a finance guy. Mm-hmm. And it's usually a guy. Uh, and so the numbers guy says, this doesn't work. Please redesign it. Basically guess again right. for the same fee. Mm-hmm. It's like, how will we know? You know right. it's like, it turns out the finance guy can't read drawings. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's no collaboration. There's, you know, so, you know, basically in a fitted peak, I declared that we would never do another design project if we weren't also doing the pro forma. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to, it occurred to our, our, our client at that time that, well, really, what do you guys charge for the pro forma? And the light bulb went on. It's like, we can charge for the pro <laughs> This is awesome. Yeah. Uh, so if we did uh, a project at 8 or 9% of budgeted hard costs on, on the architecture side, planning side, we could add another two points for doing the pro forma. Mm-hmm. But since you're doing it at the same time, you're in the room for the discussion right. about, hey, I think we got a problem as opposed to, hey, I showed this to my contractor and here are his value engineering notes that you need to incorporate. Mm-hmm. You want to create a scar where we ripped what something out of the front of this building, you know, 
So that really evolved our, our practice. And so we end up as kind of developer, designer stuff. And we kind of took the show on the road with CNU about, look, we should start, we should start looking at reducing the scale of what we're building. Mm-hmm. But we saw so many of our friends, firms, there was an outfit in California, in uh, Kansas city that totally shut down. The guy moved to Savannah, <laughs> you know, but we saw a lot of folks going to, uh, the, the principals in the firm would spend down their savings yeah. to keep people on because yeah. they needed their crew because they could maybe get that one project. Yeah. And then they didn't get the one project. And then they laid off their people who were hugely pissed off and didn't appreciate the fact that they spent their life savings to keep them on. Yeah. It's yeah. like, well, we're, we're doing great. Not work. just the life savings, but like digging into yeah. ever, ever deeper lines of credit. Yeah. So, so yeah. the, the, so at that point I became really obsessed with uh, how screwed up uh, the architecture and planning business model is where you're going to pay a fee to basically write, you know, um, you know, great sheet music to, that will be performed in front of the masses. Like right. this is going to be an amazing place. I can see it right now. You know, yeah. we're following all these principles. If we can build it halfway as good as what we have on paper, this would be awesome. Yeah. And we will not own any buildings in this awesome place. And you're also, <clears throat> you're getting paid that fee, which is really in the whole scheme of a project, a pretty small fee uh, well, because you're getting paid cash out of pocket right. at, at the front end by a developer, which is exactly the money they don't really want to spend okay. uh, at the worst possible time. Yep. Uh, and then and lo and well, behold, on the back end, you get like a realtor who, you know, gets, made more money than you did. Makes, makes six times the money you you did for yeah. you know for taking phone calls. If you did, if if you created the project right, they're just answering the phone. Right, and the not to denigrate realtors. You know, but, <laughs> you know they uh, you. It's kind of, they're kind of like the uh, they serve a useful purpose. They're kind of like the the guy that works for the county has a pickup truck with a shovel on the back who picks up roadkill. <laughs> I mean, that's an important function. Somebody's got to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I don't want to do that. Yeah. But the particularly like residential realtors who deal with people's completely unrealistic expectations and somehow yeah. make a living like, yeah. that would, that would kill me. Yeah. Wait, I do that. Um, <laughs> so the, the, we're looking at the business model and thinking, you know, we are adding a tremendous amount of value and, and there's a lot of resentment between folks on the design side and the developers who don't, from the point of view of the designer, you know, if you would just get with the program and do what I say, even though I, I'm completely oblivious to what the math is, right. you know, then things will be great. Because mm-hmm. look at Kemplots. Mm-hmm. You know. So the kind of went on uh, a smart-ass crusade of trying to, because I spent a lot of time trying to convert developers to build urbanism. Yeah. Which is a fool's errand. Yeah. Um, we, they, did, we all, we all did a lot of that. Well, I mean, they yeah. learned their lessons the hard way, like on the yeah. brink of bankruptcy. So what they learned was if you depart from the conventions, bad things happen. Yeah. So even if they want to do it, the first time there's a speed bump, they want to reach for what they know. Right. So there's a parallel situation where trying to, uh, convert architects in, and urban designers and planners into people who own buildings. A lot of architects are allergic to the idea that they should know anything about money. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's something that happens, it gets beat out of you in studio or, or yeah. you know, that, that if you, it, it's hard to describe, but yeah, it's yeah, almost, if it, you understand money, that's some well, compromise your great art. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Actually. I mean, in all seriousness, I think that is part of it. And it's, yeah. you know, it's like, that's a dirty thing that we don't really to concern ourselves yeah. with. Well, to so. my mind, to my simple recovering electrician's mind, <laughs> um, you're very comfortable as urbanists becoming amateur, you know, stormwater people and, and parking experts. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can read a traffic study, you know, and you know something about, you know, it's like you'd be a generalist, yeah. but the finance stuff is just a bridge too far. Yeah. Right. All this other stuff is tactical. This finance thing is, uh, will will corrode your soul. You can't do that. Well, and I think there's there's something about money. People get scared. We talk. People don't like to talk about money, and you know they yeah. get scared and easily intimidated, and and you get embarrassed by asking, well, you know, shit, I don't have any money. 
you know, maybe I don't really know anybody who's got money and how do I, how the hell do I ever like learn well, about, I, about that? You know, the, in the incremental development sessions, the, like some of the more hackneyed jokes, it's like, okay, how many people in the room want to be developers, but they feel like they don't have enough money yet. Mm -hmm. Half the room, their hands go up. It's like, well, yeah. I think it's adorable that you think developers use their own money. <laughs> yeah. The, they use some of their own money to pull the deal together, but then that's like raw material to make the project happen. Right. It's like the, well, you don't have enough money to get started. Do you have enough plywood mm -hmm. stacked up in your backyard to be able to build a building? Mm -hmm. No. You get plywood when you need it as material to build the project. Yeah. So the, I, so the struggle of like, how, how do we, uh, how do we crack this problem? How do we get to a point where the people that are involved on the front end don't end up designing something that can't be built? And, you know, just all of these kind of, uh, all the static on the line on what should be a, a cohesive, collaborative environment. Yeah. We can't communicate well because we come from these different tribes. So the, so that was around the time that we had the conversation about Okay, forget about trying to convert existing developers. Right. Kevin Klinkenberg says we should just create a thousand new developers. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I thought that was hubris. I was thinking ten would be good. You know, <laughs> a thousand. Okay, that's a stretch goal. I, I have been known to have some hubris from time to time. Not very often. Yeah. Every once in a while, like well, it, leaks, a it leaks out. We'll beat that right out of you. Oh God. Yeah, yeah. You, you basically you're the idiot in the household for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, what would it take to make new developers? And so the CNU in Buffalo, uh, I got it put on the program that eight in the morning, the day after the dance party, you know, <laughs> eight on eight in the morning on Saturday morning, we would have the first annual talk about hubris, mm -hmm. the first annual rookie developers breakfast, mm -hmm. and we were going to meet at this coffee shop, and fifty people showed up. And we, you know, when we had conversations and we talked about fourplexes and, and maybe we could own buildings. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of young, younger folks, uh, a lot of women. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was, uh, it was like, a, I felt like, you know, being struck by lightning. Yeah. But we, we took down an email list and stuff, but I lost that. <laughs> so for the next year, about two, three months, my daughter put me on Facebook right, and explained to me why social media was useful. Mm -hmm. I was highly skeptical. <laughs> um, see, now I live on Facebook. But the, the, uh, so for the following year in Dallas, um, I had put together this Facebook group of like small developer builders or right. something. And uh, I proceeded to dump everyone I knew into that group and they could opt out if they wanted to. Yeah. But look, we got 200 members. So kind of like a cat, a 12-pound cat puffing up for a fight. Yeah. Uh, so then we had the second annual Rookie Developers Breakfast, like get coffee and go stand in the public park. Mm -hmm. uh, and people joined the Facebook group. And we started doing uh, like Zoom or, or uh, you know, online classes, you know, on Saturday mornings. And the, it was pretty quickly that people were saying, you know, we need to, uh, and the first group was all women. Mm -hmm. So we started talking about, you know, well, we should get together and have like an actual face-to-face -face training session. Yeah. And uh, so Ellen M. Jones and a couple of people from the Atlanta CNU chapter said, well, you know, we can do it in Atlanta. When can we do it? Because people can get there fairly easily. We'll do it in October and it'll give us time. Right. And then... The discussion goes a little further and people said, October, screw that. We need one now. <laughs> so three weeks later, we were doing the first, what became incremental development workshop in a uh, event center that was formerly an auto body shop in Duncanville, Texas in August. Mm -hmm. And the air conditioning system um, disappointed us mightily. <laughs> and we toured Monty's projects and, you know, uh, it was kind of a, a death by PowerPoint for three days. Mm -hmm. um, and we learned a lot since then about hand-design exercises and the like. Mm -hmm. And then between that one and October, I did, I think, three or four in New England. So by the time we got to October, uh, we'd recruited some more uh, 
speakers or faculty. Um, and it came off as pretty polished. You know, the, uh, my dad's got a, a barn that's put on a show. Mm -hmm. The, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we opened for Hermit's Hermits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and people liked our stuff. And then we formed the nonprofit. Jim Kumi came on, uh, you know, came off of uh, Strong Towns and we got going, got a board together, did a mm -hmm. nonprofit thing and uh, ran around the country Johnny Appleseed and this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's been the most satisfying uh, piece of my professional life because, you, you know, I'm, I can, I, it, I'm good at kind of analyzing and strategizing and, well, it looks like what you need to do is focus on these more basic things, smaller mm -hmm. projects, get, you know, do the recipe for yourself before you cook for 40 people. Yeah. But um, then COVID rolls in, uh, the, uh, the InkDev training goes virtual, and compared to that visceral, you know, you're getting good feedback, you see the light bulb go on, you're at yeah. someone's elbow with a site plan. It just seemed like just profoundly disappointing because I'm looking for that. Mm -hmm. And this was like decaf. Yeah. You know? So I'm reminded I wanted a real cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. So we started doing uh, in-person uh, 2022 in-person training in Atlanta, about 15 people, local cohort. Mm -hmm. And during that time, the project that Eleanor had initiated was the purchase of a two-acre uh, former Volkswagen site. The building had been vacant for 11 years. The roof had failed. And we, we ended up pulling 37 dumpsters of moldy used furniture out of there. Mm -hmm. it was just, but this is just classic uh, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. Because at is, this point, you're living in yeah, Eastport living, and you're trying we, to do this project. We, we moved to Eastport on purpose. Um, the, uh, I was <clears> working <throat> with David Kim and Bruce Toller and Will Bergen. Uh, uh, Tommy Ficello had mm -hmm. brought us to um, Memphis and we were working on an Inco project with Tommy for right. the past. So we we're really busy and we we're doing good work. Um, and so Eleanor's taken on this project because it's two blocks from our house. We see it every time we go to the hardware store. Yeah. And uh, we get it under contract and we're moving forward with it. But it was too prominent and too, there was like too much notoriety around it in a, in a city where we had not really built a foundation of trust. And what we tell other people was start small, do an ADU, do a house hack. Right, um, right. You know, renovate a gas station. You know, um, and build, you know, build as of right. Don't worry about any entitlements or overlays or mm -hmm. doing that, you know, urban design planner mojo. Right. Um, because you need to find out like the difference between what the, what the municipality has like in the brochure versus in real life yeah. down the street. So the, um, and what we did not understand at the time was the mayor um, had characterized that we were, we were white gentrifiers from out of town, actually from Portland. So we we're like the gentrifiers from central casting hmm. and we should be opposed at every turn, but don't put anything in writing. We only found that out three years later when the property went back to the bank, hmm. back to the lender and was foreclosed and auctioned. Mm -hmm. So it was a really painful lesson. We were really invested in the community and the neighborhood, but we were oblivious to, um, how afraid um, they had no plan, but they were, you know, living in the threat of, of the glacier redevelopment coming from the northern border of the city with Atlanta mm -hmm. in their way. Mm -hmm. And it's not for me as a doughy white male to say, you know, you really shouldn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. It's only been 400 years. Are, yeah. aren't, aren't you over that yet? <laughs> so it's a, you know, it's a really big, hairy problem. And I think that um, as new urbanists, it's easy for us to um, kind of believe our own press mm -hmm. that, you know, we are doing important and valuable things and people, you know, if people don't outright welcome us. They shouldn't give us a lot of opposition because we're going to make a great place, you know. Um, and I think we need to meet people where they are and develop the sort of communication necessary to sort out conflict. We need to, it, this stuff only is going to happen at the pace that we build trust. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
and um, <clears throat> and there's no immediate utopian fix to any of it. You well, know, I mean, Stephanos always talks about it's, you know, it took a hundred years to create the dysfunction that we have in yeah. our cities, and we're not going to unwind it in five. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think also uh, because we we like to think that we're really pragmatic, but we yeah. have such an idealistic streak. Oh yeah, very strong. And it, it creates a lot of blind spots, mm-hmm. and the one of the things that we found doing Del Mill was if you get too far out ahead talking about creating utopia mm-hmm. and you only deliver 72% utopia, people want to talk to you about the 28% they didn't get. <laughs> if you do a pretty good job and deliver 28% utopia, people are thrilled. Yeah. You know, you're a hero because right. you kind of under promised and over delivered. Yeah. And so setting and, and, and maintaining realistic expectations and engaging other people so that, you know, you're not the heroic, uh, white mm-hmm. savior, you know, the, uh, I mean, I made so many mistakes over the last three years. Um, looking back, I think the only salvage value that we're going to have from that project, um, is going to be to take a really sober and transparent look at what the lessons learned were. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, at this point, we're probably looking to move out of town because um, it's it would be hard to go to the hardware store and see that site. Yeah. Now bought by a couple of doctors who have no idea what they're doing. Uh-huh. A couple of white doctors. So this would be interesting. It would be bad. So Eleanor and I are looking at the smaller cities outside the perimeter freeway. Mm-hmm. And these are typically the demographic mixes, 50-50, 60-40, and white folks and black folks are are doing business together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably a, a better environment. East Point is an eighty percent black town with mm-hmm. uh, with black elected leadership and black senior staff. And um, so, if you have the lens of trying to defend your town from the gentrifiers, mm-hmm. the things that are going to, you know, you'll see through that lens. You could confirm that yeah. you know, that that's who we. That must be who we are, and all the work with InkDev and the fact that we were mentoring you know small black developers to work in the project, that was seen as like the most cynical sort of tokenism, mm-hmm. and it's like the um, uh, I was really bitter, feeling like really like unfairly misunderstood. Mm-hmm. That's my problem. You mm-hmm. know, I'll get over it. Let's find something constructive we can do. Right as of right. A small scale. There you go. Building trust. Yeah. Not asking for any rezoning or mm-hmm. any of that. Uh, Macon's a pretty neat town. Yeah. Macon, Monroe, mm-hmm. um, Covington, yeah. Palmetto. A couple of great little college towns around there, too, which I'm already forgetting the names of, but I used to know really well yeah. uh, living in Georgia. But I mean, that that's rough. That's, you know, it's real life. It's hard lessons learned and everything else. But Eleanor pointed out to me that we are in exactly the same circumstances we were in 2008. Yeah. We managed to hang on to our house. Mm-hmm. Everything else, gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but we're not in the circumstance of 2009. Yeah. You know, um, you know we can come back. It's like, boy, that is uh, some serious glasses half full kind of talk. <laughs> well, good for her. Yeah, good for her. And then, you know, I was. It's funny. I always think about like what happened with Brian and I's experience. You know, running our firm. And I, once in a while, I get the occasion to talk to younger architects. And uh, I, you know, I was like, we had a great time. We loved what we did. But there's also a really important cautionary tale there, which is, you know, we did a lot of really stupid things from like a running the firm standpoint and from managing money and. And, and everything else, which, you know, I take full responsibility for, but it, uh, if you don't think about those things and take care of those things, you know, the worm may turn in some way that you don't expect. And then, uh, well, I mean, we're not, yeah. we're not immune to the fallout from other people's mistakes. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, a big firm in your market makes some bonehead plays. You could go out of business Yeah. and you have nothing to do with their decisions. Yeah. So that's the, so I think that the, um, we should be sober. I mean, you don't design a, a building without getting a soils report. Yeah. 
because otherwise, how would they use the footing? Mm-hmm. Well, this is gumbo soil. It'd be a huge footing, you know. And if you don't build a huge footing, your building will fall over into the swamp. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that we need to, you know, ground truth and understand the the places where we're developing, uh, the places that we're serving as design professionals. Mm-hmm. That there's a reality on the ground that you're only going to get a piece of the story from the se- each of the seven people you talk to. And I think we're also prone to confirmation bias. Yeah. Where, I mean, you see this in RFPs where people get the RFP, the request for proposal, and you read it, it's like, oh my God, as if they wrote it for us. Mm-hmm. They're saying they would like this project to be carried forward by <clears throat> vertebrates. <laughs> Everyone in our firm is a vertebrate. <laughs> and actually, they will give special you know, consideration to firms that are comprised of mammals. Yeah. Everyone here is a mammal. This is going to be awesome. We're going to get this. You know, we, we mm-hmm. see that, uh, we project and we confirm that stuff. In reality, it's actually wired for Stantec or AECOM. Right. You know, and you never had a shot. Yeah. And you gotta, you gotta spend money learning that lesson. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get back and talk a little bit about just the general importance of, uh, incremental development, small-scale development, especially for uh, idealistic, reform-minded people like we know in our world. And, you know, I think as I go back and think about when I when I wrote that blog post and we were having all those discussions about needing to uh, create new developers, I think... Did you, you say 1,000 or 10,000? I said 10,000, which was a lot of hubris, but that's okay. Um, I, I, there was some math well, behind it. I did by, at one but, point. But bracketing that, I thought like, I'm going to use 1,000 and I yeah. look like the reasonable Exactly. Market. Yeah. I think it actually came down to like, if there were a hundred new de- small developers in the top 100 metros, you know, so yeah. that, but you know, a lot of that came from the same experience you're talking about. We spent so many years in the two thousands as new urbanism gained a lot of steam and, uh, notoriety and success. Uh, we, you know, I felt like we all very naturally got a little full of ourselves and we started thinking, well, the solution now is to level up and convince, uh, the big wall street, uh, builders, the convince yeah, we Walmart, should, we should take on more scale and complexity at the same time. Yeah. And convince Walmart how to build urban Walmarts and convince CVS how to do everything right. Instead, we really, in retrospect, I guess you maybe only learn these things in retrospect, but in, in retrospect, we would have spent so, we would have been so much more effective by just training, continually training a younger cohort of people to be the entrepreneurs to do those things. The people who actually were invested in the idea of doing urban places, period, and who cared about it, but helping them have the business skills and the development skills. And the, 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 the neighborhood organizing and right. political skills. Right, exactly. To actually undertake and do projects uh, instead of working through the large, you know, corporate uh, well, apparatus. To I do think it. we got, we caught the patient's disease. Yeah. And the uh, we like to think we're better than that. And I think, you know, we recognize that uh, we'll probably be doing, you know, if we, if we take Stefanos, uh, timeline notion of like it took 100 years to get here it's going to take mm. a couple of generations to get out of it mm. that's pretty salient advice um but the i mean if we can't uh, if we look to take on the tools by which conventional development is built mm. which has a lot to do with economies of scale and right. standardization so we you know we look for ways to do that you know it's like the um, listen, Andreas at DPC, you know, make the case for here's conventional development, here's traditional neighborhoods. Yeah. You know, we can, and Andreas's point is like, yeah, sprawl is in fact kind of ugly, but the main problem is it's really dysfunctional. In mm-hmm. terms, it's not like our, our life is not enriched because we don't have enough beauty. Mm-hmm. Our life is torn down because we have a lot of mundane wastes of time and energy and mental health impacts, you know, it's dysfunction. Yeah. So if, if we're going to do this and we want to be able to use uh, institutional money, if we want to get apartments at a reasonable number, we need to mimic the, it has to be at least 150 units. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's go back to like what Chris Leinberg used to always talk about with like the there's the 19 standard product yeah. types. You yeah. Know? So and but but in the overall <clears throat> development, we came forward with the idea that you know if you're going to be dealing with investors and banks and cities and everything else, you we're not smart enough to keep more than one story straight. But you do have to know your audience and feed them what they eat. Yeah. You know, you don't go to the bank and say this is going to be a radically uh, amazing new experiment because this just sounds like a lot of risk. It's like, well, you know, yeah. this is not the be all end all, but it's a pretty good project. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, reasonable debt service coverage ratio. You know, it may not be a right fit for you. you maybe you want to refer me to another bank. Yeah. You know? No, no, please come back. <laughs> so, yeah. but the the scale that we were taking stuff on at, um, you know, that you could build uh, a lifestyle center, and we would argue about whether or not it had enough apartments. Yeah. You know, it's still a lifestyle center surrounded by a sea of parking. Right. So we created, I think, uh, an appreciation for methadone where we'd be the first to admit that the patient was not getting clean. Mm -hmm. But a junkie on methadone can hold down a job at a car wash. Yeah. It's like they're moving in the right direction. And so good enough for now, we need to fix it later. But we, I think that the fascination with and the necessity to be operating at that scale really damaged our our understanding of, of what a sustainable business model would be. Yeah. It, it's almost like, you know, there were, Andreas has talked about this a lot, especially when we were doing all, all the work with lean urbanism, which was, there were all these incredible lessons from Seaside that we just forgot because Seaside became a famous expensive resort town. But, you know, the fact that, you know, they curated small entrepreneurs to really be the, be the people who made the energy for it. So, you know, who brought in Modica and Charlie Modica and Modica's market. And we had Perspicacity, which really created all the cute little stores that everybody liked. And we well, really they also, forgot. They, they, they do like pave asphalt roads. They yeah. they did it 300 lineal feet at a time with people yeah. laying yeah. Uh, pavers. Yeah. And... And there, that was the scale that, you know, Robert Davis worked at <clears throat> that ultimately created this incredible place. Uh, and we just, you know, I think it probably is a natural human thing. We got so excited for the immediate possibilities. We, I think about it in terms like when we did New Longview uh, together and, yeah. <clears throat> and as we started, you know, working out the commercial uh, portion of it. And ultimately, you know, obviously one of the things there was start to talk about like, you know, drugstores. There, there was a, obviously there was a hole in the market for a drugstore. So it's like, okay, we're going to get a Walgreens or a CVS. And we knew that that would be a, a battle to get them to do anything, you know, better than like a C minus building. So it, it, in retrospect, it's like, you know, damn, I wish we would just had like an infrastructure put together a human infrastructure to say, we're going to go find that young entrepreneur who actually knows the drugstore business. That's like oh, the, a manager the there. The pharmacist who left Walgreens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, fund them to create the next thing in, and really be that in the community instead of trying to work on the corporate ones who don't really want to change anyway. Yeah. Well, what was baked into the approach to rail development from the beginning was the kind of a recognition that uh, and this came out of the exploration of lean urbanism, mm -hmm. because when we talked about, I mean, for people who weren't around at the time, that, that in between tactical and mainstream new urbanist projects, there would be the opportunity for a scene that was uh, self-building mm -hmm. and, you know, people working in the parts of town that no one gave a shit about. Mm -hmm. You know, that would be really cool. I got kind of panicked about that because I felt like we needed a really solid alternative business model. For the people that were going to do that, because they're going to have to operate in the world of banks right. and, and lumber yards and the like. Yeah. Um, they're going to have to find tenants. They're going to have to do all this stuff. And we shouldn't have an unnatural confidence that, you know, a couple of white papers are going to get us there. So I, I went after that really hard. And that really led to our work with the Incremental Development Alliance. Because it really, the, the large scale, Development outfits are are dominated by the, the concept of economies of scale. Mm -hmm. And some of those economies of scale are completely necessary to amortize the level of brain damage you're going to encounter when you go to work in a new community that yeah. is, is roughly analogous but wildly different from the last one. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so you're going to learn that the same words mean different things when you go 10 miles down the freeway. Yeah. So you need to have, uh, and also, you know, if we're going to do four units, we may as well do 400. Yeah. Because the litigation will cost the same. Mm-hmm. You know? so, and, there's, and there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, well, you, you experience, we all experience yeah, that. So that's the big stuff. And what mm-hmm. we came up with was we need to conceive of this as a parallel system and a, and a very different business model. And we need to cultivate... Uh, uh, folks that are very collaborative and recognize, I mean, the city of Memphis has 30,000 vacant properties. You're not going to run out of work. Yeah. You're not competing. This is more like craft brewing. You know? <laughs> yeah. As long as you have the evil empire of, you know, uh, Miller Coors and mm-hmm. Budweiser and yeah. of Bush, it's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this radical thing. We're going to make better beer. Okay, so we will expand the market. Yeah. And because it's better beer, we will take some of those assholes market share. <laughs> and, you know, and the world is our oyster. And if you need to, you know, get my brewmaster two days a week, we can make that work. Uh, you're just getting started. Let me sell you some of our old equipment because now we're scaling up. Yeah. The level of collegiality and, you know, and they get together a trade association and lobby to get mm-hmm. the rules changed in their state. That's a really good model, and I think that it applies, uh, has a lot of uh, utility for small developers and for the design professionals and the financial people who want to work with small developers. It is that uh, build that network. And in Kansas City, I've got to say, Abby is doing a great job mm-hmm. of getting people together on a regular basis. Yep. And it, everyone comes and feels like they got way more out of it than they had to put in. Yeah. So they're going to keep coming back. And, yeah. there's, and there's alcohol. Yeah, well, that helps too. But yeah, she's done a phenomenal job, and I hope every every community needs uh, uh, somebody like Abby to help help be the ringleader. Um, John, you're the master of the analogy, so I think that's a good place to wrap it with that. The analogy of the craft brewer. Uh, we've done uh, we've done a little uh, over an hour, or so uh, I do like to ask people though, just for fun, uh, you know, since I call this the Messy City Podcast, and it's about places that have that characteristic of small scale development something that's a little more organic and you know not perfect did, do you have a favorite place in mind when we talk about that a favorite it could be a city it could be a neighborhood um what comes to mind well i uh, i'd spent enough time in ocean springs with bruce mm-hmm. to you know he sees it warts and all because he's been grinding away there for yeah over, over two decades mm-hmm. right and uh, I show up and it's like, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, well, that could use a little work, mm-hmm. but it's like the post Katrina, that was high ground. So anybody with a bar or restaurant that got wiped out for Katrina found some space in ocean Springs and mm-hmm. it always been artist colony and the like. So it's its own place. Yeah. And, um, I, I like it a lot and there's a lot of different scales and, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there's a lot of fine grain stuff and then, and then they have a quarter of crap. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I like that place a ton. Yeah. It's a great uh, town. And, uh, but I also, uh, I have a real soft spot for, uh, for Inman park in, in uh, Atlanta, which was a kind of a scruffy streetcar extension and, and now is completely out of reach for somebody like me. Yeah. Uh, but great restaurants. I'm, you know, I'm happy to experiment on the rich because <laughs> they got room to make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are, those would be my two favorites. And I, I go back to my old neighborhood in Duluth, mm-hmm. um, which has you know, changed a lot over the years. I was part of the diaspora of, you know, like we went from 90,000 to 70,000 when the steel mill ch- uh, chain uh, mm-hmm. closed down and uh, there was a strike on the docks and, but now it's back up to 90,000 and a lot of, uh, uh, Minneapolitans have second mm-hmm. homes there, mm-hmm. which causes some tension mm-hmm. culturally. Um, so the central hillside in Duluth, uh, ocean Springs, uh, Inman park, you know, I think those are all, uh, great spots. Oh, and the East Portland, Southeast Portland, mm-hmm. um, the, it used to be, um, the edge of that, that it's, it is a place with so much missing middle, with so many really mm-hmm. creative, you know, uh, solutions with the topography and everything. And, uh, it used to be 80% kind of 
mixed and 20% just uh, residential. And the, in the 59, they changed the zoning and flipped that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the kind of place where you can go there and people say, well, what do you mean you can't build a fourplex? They're everywhere. It's like, yeah, <laughs> if that burned down, you can build a single family house. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, that can't be. It's right there. Right. So it's a great place for precedent, but it's also a place where um, uh, the locals don't really understand um, that you can't uh, enhance or replicate it. You basically, right. you know, in some ways it's kind of hospice. Yeah. You know, they're, you know, as buildings turn over, the new ones getting built are not great. Hmm. So hmm. that's a good case in point of like, it's not the great place, but it's a place where you could really uh, understand the contrast between what was done well and what we're doing now. Yeah. 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 All right. Great. Thanks, John. Yeah. Thank Glad you. we could finally do this. We'll yeah. have to do it again. Yeah. The uh, I'll see if I can learn some more hard lessons. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so farewell.